All right, what's up, guys? Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Who day? How about those Bengals? Yes. As a lifelong Bengals fan, uh, I've only been waiting 31 years for that. So I'm 32, so uh, almost my whole life. But no, that, that was fun. Um, this new space, man, good weekend. I'm excited to be here. I hope you guys like this. This is a brand new spot that you see just rehabbed, and uh, it's cool to have the opportunity to just be here and even using this, this historic building to lift up his name and glorify him. And that is uh, really what I want to see happen this morning, is just that God's name is going to be lifted up and glorified. So uh, I want to ask, how many of you guys here like movies that have plot twists? Yeah? Okay. I'm not like a huge movie guy, but if I'm going to watch a movie, I want it to be intelligent, uh, and I want it to have like good, like, if it has a good plot twist, there's a good chance that I'll actually enjoy it. Uh, but when I say good plot twist, I don't mean something where it's just like it comes out of nowhere and it's like, oh my goodness, that, that I didn't see that coming. And then you look back and there's no clues for it. That's not a good plot twist. A good plot twist is where like you didn't see it coming, but then you look back and you watch that movie second, third, fourth, fifth time. And you realize that there's so many clues pointing towards it that you're like, my goodness, how did I not see this coming? Like everything was here pointing towards this, but somehow I missed it. Those are the movies that, that I really, really like and I think are well done. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that think reading the Bible is boring. And I think that's because, um, well, there's a lot of reasons I can go into that. But one of which is I think that we don't do a good job of seeing the whole story that the Bible is telling. And uh, the Bible, like any good story, it's got a lot of good components, but one of which it even includes kind of some of these things. Like every now and then there's like plot twists that come up where something happens that you were not really expecting, but then you can go back and look and see all these things that we're pointing forward to and say, oh my goodness, how did I not see this? Yet it still ends up taking a lot of people by surprise. And today, the uh, passage that we're going to be going through is going to actually be helping people deal with a plot twist uh, that, that has been unveiled in, in uh, God's big plan of how he's saving the world, all right? So we're going to get to that. Um, but before we do, uh, I just want to remind you, from last semester, we were studying the book of Romans. So if you weren't with us last semester, welcome this semester. Uh, we were going through the book of Romans. Romans is uh, a giant letter, actually. We call it a book, but it's a letter, and it was written by this guy named Paul. Uh, Paul was a, a Jewish man that used to be a Pharisee, meaning he was a Jewish religious leader, but he had a, a miraculous conversion to follow Jesus when Jesus appeared to him when he was actually persecuting, on his way to persecute Christians. And uh, he has this radical conversion, and so he becomes a Christian, and he goes and he starts planting churches all over the world. And what he would do a lot of times after he plants these churches, he'd go on and plant another one, but he'd write letters to these other churches. Now, Rome is a little bit different because he had actually never even been to the, the church in Rome. But he writes them this massive letter. It's actually the longest letter that we have from the ancient world. Okay, so it's, it's, we have it divided up into 16 chapters. When the Bible was initially written, it didn't have uh, chapter breaks or verses or anything like that. But just to say, this is a long letter. There's a lot of words. There's a lot of content in this. And uh, we got halfway through it last semester. And um, as we were doing that, we saw this, this message really laid out about the gospel, and, and what, what its power is to save. And so w when we pick up, I want to recap here a little bit, but uh, I do also want to warn you that the passage we're going to get into today is a difficult one, okay? And I can pretty much guarantee most of you will probably be uncomfortable, like with what we read this morning. Um, so just be prepared for that. Um, that it's okay. We can trust God. We can trust his word. We're going to walk through this together. Um, there's a lot of good stuff that we're going to have to be able to take away from what we have this morning, but it is probably going to make you uncomfortable at some point. So with that, I actually want to pray uh, before we get any further. <clears throat> um, God, we love you, and I thank you so much for who you are. Lord, I think of uh, what we were just singing and praising you, praising aspects of who you are, that you're a mighty warrior that fights for your people. I think of um, Moses breaking into to a song talking about that, you being a mighty warrior after you've delivered 
uh, your people from the Egyptian army. And God, I uh, think also while you're strong and you're mighty, you're, you're also tender and you're a good, good father. And that, that we see that aspect of you too, Lord, that you've actually adopted us as your children and we get to come be with you. And God, today we want to just sit at your feet. You are our father. You are our king. You are our mighty warrior. We want to uh, just lift you up. God, I pray that today in our hearts and our minds, you would become bigger. We need that, Lord. We, we uh, just confess that we can so often have too high of a view of ourselves and too low of a view of you, God, and we want our view of you to be bigger. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit and how uh, you work in us. And God, we just pray that your spirit would be here in this room today. God, fall on us and, and help us. Give us ears to hear what you have to say. And God, I pray for me just as I, as I uh, bring your word this morning, and, and give my commentary on it, Lord, that uh, it would be honoring to you, that it would be truthful, that it would be accurate, that it would be glorifying to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We give it to you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so I was talking a little bit about this letter to the Romans that we've been in the middle of studying. We read the first eight chapters of it together. We've worked through the first eight chapters of it. Um, there's a ton of material in this, as I was saying. And scholars will debate about why this letter was even written in the first place. Because like I said, Paul had never visited the church in Rome. A lot of these other uh, letters that he wrote, he was writing back to churches that he started. And he was helping them with specific problems that were going on there. With Romans, we have all this content. Um, but, but there's a debate over why did this thing get written in the first place. Now, I don't really want to get too much into that. But one thing I will say is it becomes... It, it seems like we can discern that there's some sort of tension that was going on in Rome between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, okay, that were together in this church. Now, when I say Jews and Gentiles, I know that those aren't, at least Gentile is not a term that you hear that often today. And so I want to make sure you understand what a Jew is and what a Gentile is, because it's actually really, really important for understanding the Bible. Like, if you want to understand the scripture, you need to, to know this, okay? Okay. Um, so Jews are a, a people group that God brought into a special relationship with himself, okay? Uh, we might call this his covenant people. Covenant is just a term for a binding and special relationship that two parties enter into. And the Jews are people that God had this special relationship where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we see that he did all these kind of things with them. And it started way back with this guy named Abraham. All the Jews traced their lineage back to this man named Abraham. And uh, God made a promise to this man named Abraham that he would give him descendants, that he'd bless him, and that he would give him land. Now, the interesting thing about Abraham is that God made this promise to him, but all the way up until his 86th birthday, he still didn't have any kids. And God promises that he's going to turn him into this great nation. And uh, at 86, he finally becomes a father for the first time. But it's not with his wife. <laughs> He actually becomes a father because he gets his wife's maid pregnant. All right, now it's not quite as scandalous as it sounds. His wife was actually in on the plan uh, where they decided that she was clearly barren. And so maybe uh, God's, uh, God's promise would be fulfilled if he goes and raises up a child with, with this woman. Okay, so they had this desire to see God's promise come true that Abraham would be this father of a nation, even of many nations, but they really sure how it was going to happen. And so finally, uh, they, they took their own way of trying to make it happen. The promise had been given over 10 years before this. Now, the thing is, <laughs> this is not the way that God actually planned to fulfill his promise, though. So 14 years later, at the age of 100, Abraham had a second son. And this son was born of his wife, Sarah, who was 90 at the time. And this son's name is Isaac. Okay, the first son, who was from the maid, his name was Ishmael. The second son, his name is Isaac. And this is the son of promise, the one that, that God promised. This is the one that's going to be the inheritor of these blessings and that land and everything that God said he was going to give to Abraham. Ishmael is not the son that's going to get these things. It's going to be Isaac. And then we see that Isaac has two sons, twin boys, actually, whose names are Esau and Jacob. 
And once again in this situation, God picks one of them to be the special people that he's going to enact these promises with, that he's going to bless in this special way. And the one that he picks is Jacob, who's actually the younger of the twins. He's only, what, a minute or two younger, but he's younger. Um, and, And that's the one that God picks. Now, Jacob later has his name changed to Israel, which literally means struggles with God. It's after he has this wrestling match with God the Bible talks about. And uh, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's probably a term you've heard before, right? You probably think of Israel. Oh, I know that. That's a country over in the Middle East somewhere. Yes, it is. But the reason that it's called that, that, that country is it comes back to this guy's name. Because Jews are all descendants of this guy Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. And so that's why the, na- the name of the nation that we have today is even called Israel. Because they were a people group before they were a nation state, the way that we have them today. All right, so these descendants of Jacob, these are the Israelites, these are the people that God is going to fulfill that promise to be his covenant people, to be uh, his, they would be uh, his people, he would be their God, they're going to be the ones that inherit this blessing and this land uh, and all these kind of wonderful things, many other wonderful things that God would promise to them throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So these Israelites would later become called Jews, I'm not going to get into that right now, but just think of that. Basically, it's the same idea, Jews and Israelites. Now, the second term, Gentile, that's just a term that describes everybody that's not a Jew, okay? So if you don't fit all of those qualifications that I was talking about, where you were uh, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that just means that you're a Gentile. So most of us in this room here, probably Gentiles. Now, if you think about that, there's actually something interesting I just said there that, that probably escaped you. But most of us in this room are Gentiles. Now, the reason I say that that's weird is why? We're worshiping the God of Israel. This is the God that called a special people to himself, this special line of people that would come from Abraham and from Isaac and from Jacob. He's their covenant God. He's the one that gives them the law. He's the one that gives them all of these promises, all these kinds of things. And yet here we are, Gentiles, not those people, and yet most of us, that, that, that's, that we're here worshiping that God, that same God of the Old Testament. Now you have to look at that and say, that's a little bit strange, isn't it? Like you, you would expect the people worshiping that God mainly to be people of that line, right? You know, Jesus was Jewish. He was from this line. Uh, the, Peter and all the rest of the apostles, Jewish, from this line. Paul, the guy who was writing this letter, Jewish, from this line. All all these people, they're all Jews. And yet, we look at this room, and as a matter of fact, we could look at the church all across the world, and it's very predominantly Gentile, although there are still plenty of Jews that are Christians. Don't ever think that being a Jew means you can't be a Christian. You can ethnically be a Jew and be a Christian, all right? That Judaism is both a religion and an ethnicity. But there are plenty of ethnic Jews that are Christians, but by and large, most ethnic Jews are not. And, by, and most people that are Christians are actually not ethnic Jews. So if God's called the Jews to be a special people, then why is it that all of us Gentiles are worshiping him? And not only do we worship him, that we, but we actually believe that we are people that have a special relationship with him, right? Like we just sang that song, You're Good, Good Father. Who is he a good, good father to? Us, right? Like I've stood here and preached to you guys many times talking about this idea of how we've been adopted into God's family. Matter of fact, in Romans 8 last semester, we saw that, that that we've been adopted as God's children by his spirit. We cry, Abba, Father. We call him our daddy. We have uh, been adopted as his kids. We certainly have a special covenant relationship with him. But if you're a Jew that's living in the first century, you would probably be surprised that there are all of these non-Jewish people, all of these people that are, are, are not the ones that God made this special covenant with that are coming and worshiping the God of the Old Testament, the God of your Bible as a Jew. It's a strange development indeed. So how is it that so many Gentiles became worshipers of God, the God of Israel? And, and for those of you guys that don't like history, I promise to you, This is important for you to understand. If you don't get this, you're actually going to miss a lot of the biblical message. Okay? The answer of what, of how we got here, quite simply, with all of these Gentiles worshiping God, is the gospel. 
It's the gospel, right? The gospel is the theme that dominates the entire letter of the Romans. Uh, when we started this series months ago, back at the beginning of the year, I proposed that the, really the thesis of Romans, the main thing that this whole book is about, is pretty much encapsulated in Romans 1.16. Or Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right, so here we see the Jew and Gentile thing. Now, I know it says Greek there in the text. That's, that's just another way of referring to Gentiles. Greek was the dominant culture of the area. It was the dominant language of the day. So he's just using that as a fill-in for talking about Gentiles. But we see the same kind of thing, the Jew-Gentile divide that's here. But Paul is telling us that the gospel has the power to save both the Jew and the Greek. Both the Jew and the Gentile. They're saved by the same gospel. Now, this is interesting because Jews, many of them wouldn't have even necessarily thought that they needed a gospel to be saved by. Remember, these are God's covenant people. They're the people that God gave all these promises and blessings to. These are these people that had the law given to them. They knew how they were supposed to live. And they, they tried to do this. They had all these sacrifices that they were supposed to do to, to please God. They would try to carry out those kind of things. So for, for them, it's almost like, what even is this gospel? That, that like, do we really need to be saved? God's told us how, how we interact with him. But what Paul points out very clearly in the beginning, and if you go back to Romans chapter 2 if you want to see this, is that even though God gave them the law, they didn't follow it. Like, even though they knew everything that was right to do, they were not able to actually keep it. And they became lawbreakers. And so even though, yes, they knew what they were supposed to do, they weren't able to. And that means that they needed a savior. And in the same way, we have these Gentiles who, many of them, had no knowledge of really who God was. They didn't know his law. They weren't trying to follow that. They were living in total sin. Yet they were just as much in need of a Savior. You see, whether you knew what you were supposed to do, like the Jews, or whether you didn't know what you were supposed to do, like the Gentiles, it really didn't matter because either way, both of them were, were completely lost in sin. And completely separated from God by their sin and in need of a Savior. And so this is why this gospel is something not to be ashamed of, but something to be to proclaimed. And, and to say it has the power of salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. Because both of them needed it. And so what we see here is that both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are brought together as being the covenant people of God by the gospel. That there's this good news, that, that God has brought us back together with himself. And this is the gospel that is so clearly laid out in the first half of the letter to the Romans. So to put it briefly, the gospel is the good news that God made a way for us to be forgiven of sin and brought back to him by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. So that all of our guilt, all of our shame, that as Paul said in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve, but Jesus died for us in our place. And the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He rose from the dead. And in that, he showed that he defeated sin and death and that he gives new and eternal life to all that would come to him. This is the good news of the gospel. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, this is good news for you. It's the same way that we're saved. Now, this message is, is so awesome that it can actually make you want to kind of like break out into song, right? And Romans 8 is probably one of the most triumphant chapters of the Bible. And I just want to read for you the way that this chapter ends. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. <clears throat> who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So th this is the, the good news, right? If, if God's force, who can be against us? He gave us his own son. There's nothing that can separate us from his love. This is awesome. We should be jumping around and rejoicing and singing praises, right? Th this is the good news of the gospel. And so you're reading this. You're feeling really, really good. And in many ways, you might say, this is a great way to end the letter, right? It was a great way to end last semester. This is the last sermon we preached, send you off in the Christmas break. Great. But the letter doesn't end here. As a matter of fact, what happens next is actually kind of shocking. It's not something that you would expect at all. So let's see what Paul goes on to say right after this. Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay. We just read this, this beauty of the gospel, this thing that should just make our hearts sing. And Paul goes on to say, I'm actually in unceasing anguish and sorrow. Why? Because Paul has such a concern for his fellow Jews. His Israelites. As a matter of fact, this is, he's saying, I want you to know I'm not lying, right? Because you, you might think it's crazy what he's about to say. He says that my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I'm telling the truth in Christ Jesus. I'm not kidding about this. That if I could... I wish I could be cut off from Christ for their sake. Basically, what he's telling us is, my, my fellow Jews, these people that, uh, this people group that I'm a part of, that Jesus came out of, right? He says, the, the Christ according to the flesh. All these kind of things. This group that he cares so much for, the vast majority of them do not know Jesus. And, and consequently, they're actually cut off from him. They're separated from God by their sin. And Paul says, I got anguish in my heart over this. So much so that, man, if I could be cut off for them so that they could be brought back, I would do it. You know, Paul can't do that. But, but you, you sense the fact he has, he has grief over this, and he, he goes on to list. Look at this. They, they've had everything going for them. I mean, I, I, he loves his people. He loves his people. And he looks, look at all of these different ways in which God has blessed them. He talks about adoption, meaning that they were specifically called by God to be his people. We see this back in Exodus. Or, or glory. Now this probably refers to the way that God would, would lead them in his glory. I mean, when he was taking them through the desert, he would go before them in a, a pillar of fire by, uh, by, by night. And we see this, this uh, incredible way that God would even manifest his glory in the temple. They had this, this glory of getting to interact with God in a special way. The covenants. God made this covenant with them. That he would be their people and they'd give them this land and this blessing. And, and further things beyond that even too. Where he made a covenant with David saying, you're always going to have a king on my throne. And, and there were so many beautiful promises that had been made to them. Which, is, which Paul also talks about in here as well. He talks about worship, right? Like they were the people that actually knew how to worship God. Right? It, it, the, the Gentiles, yeah, they, they knew on some level there was a God because there has to be from creation, but God had told the Jews how he actually wants to be worshipped, to follow his laws. The patriarchs, right? These are the guys, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that God made these special promises with long ago. And he says even that the Christ according to the flesh came from him. They were promised that there would be a Messiah, a Savior that would come out of their people. And that's Jesus. Remember I told you Jesus was Jewish. And so he looked, he said, man, these, these people, they've got everything going for them. God, God has done so much great for them. And he loves them so much. And we see his heart for them so much. And yet, here I am, I am in anguish over the fact that they're cut off from him. And, and God's in anguish over it too. Paul shares this heart and that how can this be that they're separated? 
they're on their way to destruction. So this is powerful. You see this amazing amount of love that Paul has for his fellow Jews, people that are, by and large, not interacting with God the way that they're supposed to be. And it's no surprise that he was such a successful and zealous missionary, right? When you see this kind of heart that he has for the lost, the lengths that he would be willing to go to to try and save them. And I I believe him when he says that he would actually give up his salvation for them because when I look at his life, we see that he did everything, including eventually sacrificing it, to to, to try and help people know Jesus. And so one, one thing that we would look at here is I'm not saying that we need to be people that need to be willing to trade our salvation. Even if you are willing, it's not something that you can do. But I do think that we can learn from the heart that he has for the lost. Man, may we be people that, that have the same kind of concern that the lost would be saved that Paul did. Now, let's read on a little bit further to see what, what Paul's getting into. Why is he chosen to talk about this right here in this letter? Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done uh, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, this is why I wanted to set you up with the foundation I did earlier in the sermon so that you know who we're talking about when we see these guys, Jacob and Esau and Isaac and um, Ishmael isn't mentioned by name here, but the same kind of idea. Verse 6, the beginning part of verse 6, is really key to understanding why Paul is getting into this discussion here. Okay? He spent a ton of time in Romans laying out the gospel for us, telling us the, the beauty of this news about how God is bringing sinners back to himself and that it's not by works, it's by faith. That, that it's all because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. And that's great news, unless you find yourself as a Jew sitting there saying, well, wait a second. How can I trust all of this stuff about the gospel if God was supposed to give all of these blessings and promises to the Jewish people, and yet now they're on the outside of it? Like, is God just like switching up what he said he was going to do? If that's the case, then what good news is the gospel? Because God's untrustworthy. And if God's untrustworthy, then why would I I trust all this stuff about the gospel? And so the reason that Paul is getting into this right here is he's trying to help us understand God's not going back on his promises. He's going to be faithful to do absolutely everything that he promised he was going to do in the first place. And so he's going to begin developing this argument. Now, I want to let you know, Romans 9 through 11 are one unit that we need to see together. I, we'd be here all day if I preached through all of that, so it's, I'm not going to do all of it today. I'm only going to get through most of chapter 9. But keep that in your mind as we're working through this together, okay? We're going to be going through this over a couple weeks. Um, but over that time, that's what he's going to do, is he's going to help us understand how God has been faithful to his promises, actually. He's not going back on that. He's not changing up the system. He's kind of like the guy, our friend, that we watched that movie with the plot twist with that confused us. And we're like, wait a second, how'd that happen? And he's, he's going to walk us back through here, showing us all the places where, yeah, that plot twist that came, that was actually pointed out here, 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 and here. And you see how it actually has been developed. And that's what he's going to help his Jewish friends see here. God's not going back on his word. Yes, he's absolutely faithful to his word. He's absolutely trustworthy. You know, as 21st century Americans, most of us being Gentiles, um, reading this text 2,000 years after it was written, most of us are not asking this question, probably. And that's why I think Romans 9 through 11 is so confusing for most Christians. You don't hear very many sermons on it. People don't talk about it very often. People are afraid of it a lot of times. Frankly, I had a lot of intimidation about trying to preach this passage because it is very difficult. 
okay? But just because we aren't necessarily asking this question about Jews and Gentiles a lot today, it's a really important question for us to understand, is God faithful? Like, can we really trust God's word? And that's ultimately what we're trying to answer here. Promises are only good if the one who makes them has the power to keep them and the faithfulness to keep them. So the question is, does God keep his promises? And Paul answers this question with an emphatic yes. The word of God has not failed. And the reason is because he's trying to help us see, first off, the promises that were made. Who were they actually made to? That's the first thing that he's going to take us through here. He says in in, uh, the second part of verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, uh, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. All right, this is an important concept. He's helping us realize that just because you can ethnically trace your bloodline back to Abraham doesn't mean that you're actually truly part of his offspring, right? Like there's an Israel within Israel, so to speak, kind of like those Matryoshka dolls or whatever, right? Like there's, there's a, uh, a, a true Israel, okay? The true people of faith, and these are the ones that God had actually made these promises to, right? Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but only one of them was the son of promise, and then Isaac had two sons. Matter of fact, you might discount it by saying, well, yeah, but Ishmael, he doesn't count because he was from the wrong mother. But with Isaac, he has two sons, and they're twins. Not just that they have the same mother, they're literally like the same act of conception brought these guys here. And God chooses one and not the other. Chooses Jacob, he doesn't choose Esau. And what Paul is helping us see here is that God is choosing who to include in the covenant that he establishes with his people. He's choosing. And he's saying that there are some people that, that are actually the recipients of this promise. This is how it's always been. God's not switched up the system. The fact that there's only some Jews that have actually come to Jesus and that are going to inherit these promises that were, were given long ago, that's not switching it up. Esau didn't get the promises that, that Jacob did. God's always worked this way. Now, some of us might balk at the idea of a people within the people, but it's a clear pattern of God that's shown in the Old Testament. And we actually see that the choosing of these people is entirely up to God. Entirely up to God. Jacob and Esau were twins, and and Paul points this out very clearly here. Before they could do anything, either good or bad, God chose one over the other. Matter of fact, it's it's phrased in a a really challenging way, where it says, as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, now, you won't find this quote in Genesis. This actually comes from Malachi, which was written a couple thousand years after the time of Genesis. Um, But Malachi is speaking about Jacob and Esau and, and their respective descendants and how God has dealt with these two nations, one of them being Israel, and then one of the other one being called Edom. Um, I don't think that the point of this passage is to say that God literally like hated Esau the man, the way that we think of hating somebody, okay? The Bible makes it pretty clear that, that God loves all people, even sinners, right? We talked about that in Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, some theologians in, in this would say, well, the hate here means like love less, the same way that Jesus told us we have to hate our mother, father, father brother, sister, husband, wife, if we want to be his follower. I, I see what they're saying there. I actually don't think that's the right way to interpret this, though. I think that simply what, what is going on here when he says, Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated, is he's using those words as a function of saying, I chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau. I don't think it means there's actually like animosity, enmity, hatred towards the man Esau. But it simply uses a function of saying, I did choose to use Jacob and his descendants in a particular way in how I'm unfolding my plan of salvation in history, and I rejected using Esau in that way. So, um, anyway, well, it probably doesn't mean that God hated Esau as an individual. We still might read this and wonder if it's fair that God chose Jacob over Esau, especially when it happened when they were in the womb, when they hadn't done anything. They didn't do anything to deserve their own fate or the fate of their descendants. And if this is what you're thinking, then let's read on. Continue to see Paul's argument here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Okay, we'll stop there. Um, a lot of you are probably not feeling any better after that explanation. I know that I don't when I read that. That doesn't help me feel a lot better about the, the conundrum that I feel when I see this idea that, that God has mercy on whom he has, wants to have mercy and he, he hardens whom he, he hardens. You know, in response to the thought that God might be unjust because he chooses people to use based upon his own purposes and not in response to what they've done, you might expect Paul to justify this in some way by showing how, like, oh, no, like, let me explain it to you how it actually makes sense. But instead, that's not what he does. That's not what he does. He simply reiterates the simple truth that God has the right to act in whichever way he chooses. And what he does is right. It's not unjust that God would call only some of Abraham's descendants to inherit his blessings and be part of the covenant that God made with him. He can do this if he wills. He has a reason and a purpose for how he chooses people and how he chooses to interact with them. And this includes not only the ones that he has mercy on, but also those that he uses in ways that you might not even expect. Right? And Pharaoh is pointed out as an example here. Now, I haven't talked about Pharaoh yet. Um, but we actually sang a song <laughs> earlier that wasn't even coordinated, but it was kind of related to something that God did to Pharaoh and his army. But uh, Pharaoh is used as an example here. That he, he was the king of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And during this time, the Israelites were enslaved. God's covenant people were enslaved under the hand of Pharaoh. And God wanted to deliver them out of this slavery. And so he calls up Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And so Moses does this. After some arguing, Moses does this. And Pharaoh says no. And you could expect that Pharaoh would say no, right? Like who wants to give up their, their free labor? And the interesting thing is, though, while we might not be surprised by that, that response, it becomes surprising over time because Moses warns, hey, if you don't do this, God is going to do this, this terrible thing, this plague, and it will happen. And then Moses comes back, he says, let my people go. And he's like, no. He's like, okay, if you don't do this, this plague is going to happen. And Pharaoh keeps saying no, even after all of these horrible things are happening to Egypt. And you're thinking, how in the world could this guy be so obstinate? That he wouldn't let them go after all of this kind of stuff that's happening. And the, the scripture is very interesting if you go back to Exodus and read what's going on here. Because it does say that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Okay? And, and uh, meaning he, he makes his heart hard. He, he's maybe just one of those guys that's really, really obstinate. And doesn't want to give in to what other people say. We see that as being an aspect of Pharaoh. But the disturbing thing is that it also says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We actually see both of those things in, in Exodus. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we see that, that God is, is playing some role in actually continuing to make this man so obstinate that he continually doesn't let Israel go. Why? Well, we see that um, Paul, Paul talks about this, this idea that um, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, as Pharaoh continues to be hardened and hardened and hardened, what God does is he has more and more opportunity to show his power in bringing the most mighty uh, nation in the, the world at the time to its knees. 
And even after Pharaoh lets them go, he immediately regrets the decision, sends his army after the Israelites, and this is where God has his greatest display of power. He literally parts the Red Sea, lets the Israelites pass through it, and as Pharaoh's army tries to pursue them in, he closes it in over them and drowns the army. And, and that song, Mighty Warrior, that we sang, that's actually, the, the scriptural basis for that comes from the song that the Israelites break out into right after that happens. And, and w- what happens is that God's name, you see, is actually glorified through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yes, God's name is glorified, it's lifted up, we see his power, we see his glory, but it still makes us really uncomfortable that he would have a hand in hardening Pharaoh's heart for whatever reason. For whatever reason, God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau, he chose Moses over Pharaoh. The ones that received the mercy and compassion of God didn't get it because they deserved it, but rather because it was God's will. Right? Like Paul says this, Romans 9, 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You know, when we talk about this idea that we are saved by our faith and not by our works, I, we don't always get the depth to, which, to what that really means. Like how totally and completely in need we are of God having mercy on us. I warned you that we'd read some things today that would probably make you uncomfortable. Um, now, Paul anticipates the resistance, I think, that most of us feel. You know, he says in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? We're begging for an answer to this. Paul anticipates this, right? Like, he's preached all over. He knows that this is what people are wanting. He's probably wondering the same thing himself. And so here we are. Maybe we're going to get our answer, right? And instead, no, what we get is another defense of God's absolute right to do what he chooses to do. I'll go back to it for you. Verse 20, this is what he says in response. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul's trying to help us see the, the, the solution to this problem is not us intellectually understanding how and why God chooses the way he does. The solution to this problem is us understanding our place and understanding God's place. I prayed earlier, God, give us a bigger view of you. Right? Because that's what we need to be able to, to, to cope with this. We have to be able to trust that, that God knows what he's doing and choosing because we don't understand it. We don't. And unless we can trust that God is really good and knows what he's doing, we won't be able to accept his teaching. Now, there is a whole book of the Bible that is devoted to this concept, to helping teach us this concept. And it's a pretty long one. It's the book of Job. Um, Some of you might be familiar with it. Job was a guy that had a lot of good things going for him. He was a really righteous man. God had blessed him a ton. And we see in the beginning of Job that uh, there's this time, it says that Satan came and had a conversation with God, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? Look Look how righteous he is. And Satan's like, ah, well, you know, he's only righteous because of how well you've blessed him. And if you took away all these kind of things, certainly he'd curse you. And so God's like, all right, have at it. Do, do what you want to him. He gives, a, he gives certain parameters of what he's not allowed to do, but otherwise says, do what you want to him. And let's see what happens. And so that unleashes this string of, of terrible catastrophe that happens in Job's life. I mean, he, he loses all of his children. He, he starts to get sores and stuff all over his body. He, the, the guy who had so much, he literally loses everything, and he is in complete and total misery. Every, he lost everything except for his wife, which really wasn't helpful because she's sitting there saying, why don't you just curse God and die? That's the situation this guy is left in. And his friends come. And the rest of the book, I mean, this is a long, it's, it's a 42-chapter book, and pretty much the, the vast majority of it is Job and his friends having this discourse uh, of trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And, and Job's friends are like, well, certainly you're, you're guilty of sin. 
if, if you weren't guilty of sin, there's no way that God would be letting all this kind of stuff happen to you. You need to, you need to admit your sin. And Job is maintaining, no, like I, I didn't do anything that brought this about. I've been, I've been righteous. And, and, and we see him desiring to just question God, like, let me know why this is happening. And so finally, at the end of the book, we see that God actually speaks to Job. And when God speaks to Job, it, uh, it's, it starts out with him saying this, Job 38, starting at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And it goes on and on and on and on like this for a couple chapters of God just proclaiming his greatness and his glory and his power, and how he's been around for eternity, and how he knows everything, and, he, and, and all these kind of things. Job doesn't know anything about the kind of stuff that, that God knows. And at the end of the book, after God finishes this, Job is left speechless. He admits that he doesn't know what he was talking about. He repents, presumably for questioning the righteousness and wisdom of God. And you know what? Here's the interesting thing about the book of Job. Job gets to that spot after God speaks about his glory and his greatness. You know what God doesn't speak about when, when he addresses Job? The little conversation we see at the beginning of the book with Satan. That is not ever revealed to Job. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't say, hey, let me explain to you, actually. Here's what was going on behind the scenes that you couldn't see. It's not mentioned. It's not mentioned, and it's not necessary to bring Job to where he needs to be. And actually seeing the glory, greatness, power, and sovereignty of God. As the reader, we get that explanation, but Job never does. And you know, we want our answers the way that Job wanted his answers. We want to know, why is it that God would choose, why Isaac over Ishmael? Why Jacob over Esau? Why, why Moses over Pharaoh? And we come up with all these kind of explanations, like, ah, oh, well, yeah, I think it's because this or that, and, and, and whatever. We, we can engage in that mental exercise if, if we want to, but um, the reality is that's not the point. That, that shouldn't be our takeaway from this passage. The takeaway that we should have is that God is way bigger, way stronger, way wiser, way more powerful, way better than we think he is. And that frankly, as people, we really aren't in any position to question or judge God in the way that he works. And so, you know, Paul shows the extent of God's freedom to do what he wants and even proposes a scenario that might seem crazy to us. He says this, Romans 9, 22, 23, we read it already. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Man, these are difficult verses. I tell you guys, I... I, I've studied probably for 30 plus hours this week trying to find answers to questions that I just don't get answers to. Like, like that, that bothers me. That, that bothers me, this, this idea that, that that could even be proposed, like that, that God would have vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And the, the, the point of that is so that the vessels of mercy can have a greater appreciation of God's power and a greater appreciation of the mercy that was shown to them. You know, there's ways in which God works that might seem strange to us and can make us very uncomfortable. There are actually uh, a lot of people, those verses that I just read, that believe that they're teaching something called double predestination, which is the idea that... Um, before people were born even, God has predestined that, that some people would go to heaven and that some people would uh, go to hell. Some people are designed for his glory and his mercy. Some people are designed for his destruction so that he can exercise his power and his wrath. Um, I personally am not convinced that that's what these verses are teaching. I will say that. Um, although I get where people are coming from that come to that conclusion. There are, there are a lot of really faithful Christians, probably Christian teachers that many of you would respect, um, that hold to that view, that, that believe that is what these verses are teaching. Um, 
Personally, I think there's too much in Scripture about God's love for people and his desire for all people to be saved for me to settle on thinking that that's what, these, what those verses are teaching. Um, just to name a few passages that, that really make it scripturally difficult, not emotionally difficult, but scripturally difficult for me to believe in double predestination are, are this. Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes him should not perish, but have eternal life. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's because of my conviction that God loves all people and, and in his heart desires all people to be saved that I don't accept the idea of double predestination. But I think that unfortunately too many people would reject this idea, not on scriptural grounds, but purely on emotional grounds. And where, however you develop your theology, I want you to develop it in submission to the word of God. Okay? There are, there are things in Scripture that are very difficult for us, okay, where, where Christians can actually disagree on this. Like I said, there's a lot of Christians that I know and respect that, that see some of these things differently than how I do here, and I can have the humility to understand that, that it's really tough for us to know, for sure, if, if either one of us is right. But what we need to do is pe people, at the very least, that say, I have come to my theology and my belief about God, not because I've fashioned the God that I want to fashion, not because I've fashioned a God that makes sense to me, not because it's the one that my culture told me about, or, you know, my grandma, or something like that. I want my, my view of God to be shaped by what his word tells me about him, okay? So if my resistance to this idea that God would, would create someone purely for the purpose of destruction, I, I, of course that, that rubs against me emotionally. But the reason that I reject it is because of, of scriptural grounds, where, where I believe the Bible is telling me that God really does want all people to be saved. And if he did that, then I don't think it's his purpose to create people where they literally have no purpose to be saved and, and their only opportunity is for destruction. But what I can say is that I also have the humility to understand that if that is what God has done, then he has every right to do it. And I will not be his judge. I will not be God's judge. We have no right to do that. We don't know the things that God knows. We don't understand the things that God knows. And so if you ever find yourself saying, well, I just can't worship God if he's X, Y, or Z then if that's the case, then I fear for you. Because what you want God to be has no bearing on who he actually is, first off. And, and what you want to happen has no bearing on whether or not uh, it's, it's a wise or good thing to worship him. Like, he's worthy of our worship. He created you. He's good. He's trustworthy. And, and if everything about him doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. Of course it's not going to make sense to you. He's God. He's way bigger than us and way higher than us. Wherever we come down on this, we need to be people that are totally and completely committed to the perfect power, sovereignty, and wisdom of God. That even if he is acting this way, although I don't, I don't believe in double predestination, but even if that's true, that he has every right to do it and that he is still good. So we are left with the question, if, if double predestination is not what's being taught here, then what is? And I think it's, it's simply... What's being taught here is the absolute sovereignty of God. That is what Paul is trying to drive across in these verses. That is totally clear, and that is the big takeaway. I, I don't want to draw uh, conclusions any further than that. It's very clear to me that this is what Paul is really trying to drive home to us, that God is God and he can do what he wants. Now, I, I can't spend too long on this. I'm probably going really long already. I know there's a lot of difficult stuff to work through, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but to give a little bit more clarity maybe on what's going on here. Uh, first off, the, the grammar in this passage is really difficult. I am not a Greek expert, but even Greek experts have a lot of arguments about how this passage should be constructed. Um, but I do think that the, the fact that it's phrased in the form of a question 
should at least make us think, right? What, what if God is working this way? I think that if, if Paul's point is to drive home the absolute sovereignty of God, then I think that even if God isn't working this way, we have to be people that are in a position to understand that he has every right to do so if it is. Now, I, I'm not totally sold on that being an explanation, but it's a possibility. Um, the, the second thing, the, the vessels of wrath, when we even look at that, it says they're prepared for destruction. I want you to, to notice the construction here. Um, in verse 22, I think I have it on the screen in a way that you'll be, I should have a slide that hopefully has some underlining of, the, of who's doing what with these vessels. Okay, maybe, maybe it's not there. But um, in verse 22, when we see about the vessels of wrath, it says that they are prepared for destruction. In verse 23, when it talks about the vessels of mercy, we see that God is the one that's prepared them. Ah, yes, you see, prepared for destruction is in the passive, but which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So that would uh, potentially suggest the idea that, yes, God, by his, his sovereign grace and mercy, has particularly chosen to give mercy to this group, whereas this other group is simply um, getting the consequences of, of their own actions. It's the natural consequence of their sin. It's not that God, like, intended and ordained for it to be this way. Um, so that could combat the idea of, of a double predestination here. Um, third thing I would say is that some think that this whole section actually has nothing to do with individuals, and rather it's talking about how God deals with nations and peoples, right? Where he's talking about the, the choosing of Israel for a certain purpose and uh, the way that he's worked with Gentiles as, as, a, as a people group throughout history. There's a lot of strength to that argument, right? Because we are talking about people groups in this context. Uh, but at the same time, all groups are made up of individuals. So whatever God does with a group has implications for the individual. Um, all right, so all that being said, if you guys want to talk more about that, catch me after the service or schedule time to get with me. I'd love to, to talk through more of this with you, but I don't know how long I'm going, but I feel like I'm dragging on. So the, the passage is difficult and it's puzzling, but the main point is that God is king. He has the authority and the prerogative to do whatever he sees as right, and that should be our takeaway. As a matter of fact, to come away from this trying to figure out exactly how God chooses and then evaluate him on whether, uh, on this, that would actually be the exact opposite of the takeaway of the passage, right? If we read this and what we try to do is say like, wait, wait, let me see exactly what God's doing so I can judge if I like the way he's doing that, that's literally the exact opposite of what the point of the passage is which is to see that we have no right to judge God for how he chooses to work. So finally, as I close, I'm just going to move very quickly through this last section of, of verses 24 to 29. Talking about the vessels of mercy, Paul picks up here. Uh, Even us, the vessels of mercy, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. Uh, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In all of this, I don't want us to lose sight of how we got into this conversation in the first place, where we have this conundrum that the Jews were God's people and had all these promises, yet now we see that most of them were actually cut off, and they're, 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 a separate, they're separated from God by their sin, and they're not coming to Jesus in repentance in the gospel. And uh, Paul is circling back to this idea, right? So he, he, the resistance to the idea, first off, might be, well, wait, God said he was going to do this, and he didn't. And Paul's saying, no. God promised that the promise was only for a certain group. And then you might say, well, wait, why would he only give the promise to a certain group? That's not fair. And he goes on to say, God can do what he wants. If he wants to give it to a certain group, he can. And you can't argue with that. And so now he circles back to this idea where he's, he's helping them see God planned this all along, that he was going to call people to himself that were not formerly called his people. Now he quotes from Hosea. I'm not going to get into that. But basically, the what he's using this quote from Hosea is in a manner where he's trying to help you see uh, there were people that were once not identified as mine and I'm bringing them in as my own people. I promised this from long ago. You can see it in the Old Testament scripture. And, and something else that he shows from long ago 
is that, yeah, Israel had all these promises, but guess what? It was, there was always only going to be a remnant, right? And, th and that's the quote that he talks about from Isaiah, where he's like uh, showing this idea that only a remnant are going to be saved from Israel. And so that's what these passages are saying, even though I covered them in reverse order. This idea that God is faithful in his word to save Gentiles and bring them into his people, and also that God is faithful to his word and saving only a remnant of ethnic Israel. All right, as I close here, this morning's been heavy on theology, okay? I understand that, um, but I don't apologize for that because our theology is really important. Like, it impacts the way that we live. To think that we can be people that just go out and do whatever God wants us to do without really understanding who he is, like, like we're, we're not gonna be able to do a good job of that. Like, God wants us to know him. Right? We want to worship him and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every bit of our being. And, and we can do that a lot better when we know who he actually is. Alright, so my, my, my big takeaways from this morning, it's not so much this idea of go out and do this thing. But more of it relates to the posture that we have before God. That we should trust him, right? Like we, we can trust God as we have seen. He is always faithful to his word. And, and along with this, guys, we need to be people that know his word. I, I used the kind of movie plot twist analogy before, but the idea is all this stuff was pointing, there were signs that this was going to happen. Look how much Paul quotes the Old Testament in this chapter. And he'll continue to do that through 9 through 11. Paul is quoting the Old Testament constantly, helping us see that God was planning this kind of thing all along. So if, if we know God's word the, really well, the less likely we are to be caught off guard when something happens that's kind of surprising like the church becoming primarily Gentile rather than Jew. Um, and, and guys, this is why I try very hard as one of your pastors to help you develop a love for God's word. Like, I don't know if you notice that when I preach, um, but I, I, I the, preach the way I do in many ways because I really want you to see God's word for yourself and to learn how to understand it and to dive into it, and to apply it in your life. Like, I want us to be a church that loves God and loves his word. And I want you to be confident in reading your Bibles, that this is something that you can do, that you can open up the scripture, and that you can understand it, and, and that it has the power to, to shape your life and change you. You know, the, the other thing I, I think that we need to take away from this is that we should be people that are humble, right? Like, he is God and we are not. Who are you, O oh man? To, to talk to, to speak back to God. Why have you created me this way? We have no right to judge God. And in our humility, we should be people that are thankful, right? Because here's the thing, we are not entitled to grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. Some favor that is given to you that is not earned. And so often I think that we treat God like we deserve his love. When in the reality, what we, what we deserve is actually death, right? Because what are, what are we? We're sinners. Romans 6 taught us, for the wages of sin is death. So that's what we've earned. Wages are what you've earned, right? Wages are not a free gift. That's not grace. You go to your job, you get your wages. You don't say, oh, thank you, boss, for paying me. No, you've earned those wages. And what we've earned with our sin is death. Yet for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of our culture or whatever, um, just, just because of our sin and our pride, something like that, we operate as though what we've earned is God's love. And that's exactly opposite. What, what we've earned through our behavior and our sin is God's wrath, but what has been given to us by, by no doing of our own, we didn't deserve it, it's not a wage, is God's love and God's mercy. And so if that mercy is only extended to a certain group, this, this great mystery of how God calls people to himself. And by the way, like I said, Romans 9 through 11 is a unit. All right, we're not done with this yet. I'm not making any final conclusions on this mystery of how God calls people to himself. The Bible clearly shows us that there is some aspect of salvation that is totally in the hands of God where he calls and, and, and it just is what it is. And then there's this other aspect, though, that we see in the Bible where we have the responsibility to respond in faith. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But however any of this works, rather than being people like, wait, God's unfair, this or that, we need to be thankful that he saves any of us. Because none of us are, are deserving of his grace. What we're actually deserving of is his wrath. And it's because of God's goodness and his love that he chooses to give us his mercy and his grace. 
And that should be the perspective that we have. So uh, in all this today, I hope that you've come to have a greater view of how big God is, okay? And I'm not saying you can't ask questions, all right? When I talk to who are, you, who, are you, who are you to speak back to God, I think that's this idea of a defiant heart that wants to judge God. It's okay if you need to work through some of these things, if you need to pray with somebody, if you need to, to, to search the scriptures more, I'd encourage you to do all those kind of things. Um, what I caution you against is a heart of pride and defiance that would say, well, I can't worship God if he's like that. <laughs> Guys, worshiping God is not a, uh, it, it, it's not like he's the one that benefits more, right? Like he does love our worship, but we benefit more by getting to be with him. We're the ones that really need him. He's not the one that needs us. And so may we be people that are so thankful for the fact that we have a good and big and powerful and awesome God. And so with that being said, I'm going to pray. And uh, if you need prayer as an individual, uh, there's going to be a prayer team up here in this front corner. You see the prayer banner there. Uh, if it's anything, maybe you need prayer just over some of what you heard today. Uh, maybe it's just other stuff that's going on in your life. Maybe you need prayer about what's going on in your classes or a family situation, a roommate situation, whatever it may be. Uh, m maybe you're at a spot where you're like, man, I... I'm kind of starting to understand the gospel for the first time. I, I'm, I'm kind of getting this idea where I see that I need God to save me, and I want to talk to somebody about that. The people there would love to do that with you too. I don't, or you might be the, the most mature Christian in the room, and, and you're doing great with the Lord, and you still feel like he's just prompting you to get prayer from somebody. Then go do that, okay? No one's judging you if you walk up here uh, to get prayer, all right? Um, there, there are people that want to pray with you, that want to bless you in that way. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us as a group, and then we're going to enter into our second time of worship. God, we love you so much, and thank you that you are good, um, and that you're big, and that you're mighty. God, as, as your scripture has clearly challenged us this morning, to see your greatness, and your goodness, and, and your sovereignty, Lord, that, that you uh, have every right to do what you want to do, that it, it's, it's your choice to, to behave how you want to behave, God, and, and we thank you that you're good. Like, that's really, really good news, that you're good. Because that, that kind of power would be absolutely terrifying in the hands of an evil God. But Lord, I thank you that, that you are the definition of goodness and righteousness and truth. And Lord, help us to be people that trust you. I pray that you'd crush our pride. That you would crush any resistance we have to you. That you'd work in our hearts, God, and bring us to submission to see how much we really need you, Lord. To be people that see that you really are the one that saves and it's not about us. You are awesome, Lord, and you are worthy of every bit of praise. We pray that you would accept this offering of praise that we're going to lift up with our voices. And that we praise you in all that we do throughout our week. We love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.